This podcast is brought to you by Claudia Navone, the author of a new book entitled The Shape Shifter, A Tale from Glitter to Light. Please listen to podcast number 779, where Greg and Claudia speak about her personal biography. From the world of high fashion to becoming a teacher in the spiritual world, Claudia has lived it all. Claudia, from a very young age, was gifted and had the ability to see the unseen and contact the spirit world. I hope you enjoy this podcast, number 779, with author and spiritual teacher, Claudia Navone. You can learn more about Claudia by going to her Instagram page at Claudia underscore Navone. That's Claudia underscore Navone. Thanks for listening and enjoy this podcast. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Jim, as I do all the time, I have to thank these listeners that continually come back again and again and again and listen to the words of wisdom from our authors. And today joining me from Ojai, California is Jim Selman. And uh, Jim has a new book out that is really, really very timely. Um, I'm not certain when he wrote it that he knew that we were going to have this pandemic. But uh, Living in a Real-Time World, Six Capabilities to Prepare Us for an Unimaginable Future. Jim, good day to you. How are you doing? Good morning. How are you, Greg? Nice to be here. Uh, it's great to have you on Inside Personal Growth and to get some of your wisdom. Obviously, you come from years of background and experience, and obviously, living this material uh, is something that you've done. It's very evident, and I'm going to let our listeners know a tad bit about you. Uh, Jim is a recognized thought leader and authority in the field of transformation, a member of the Transformational Leadership Council. Um, he has been sharing uh, his original research and futuristic thinking about who we have to be as we navigate change with an extensive uh, roster of clients in four continents in over 30 years. Um, he is the past chairman of the World Business Academy. Academy. He sits on the boards of is it Invesa Corp? Did I say that right? Innovosi. Uh, Innovosi Corp. Open Blue, two businesses at the leading edge of emerging aquaculture industry. He's the founder of the Eldering Institute. That's www.eldering.org. And is a frequent blogger at the Huffington Post and at sereneambition.com. You can find him there. He recently initiated a new venture, Real-Time Futures, as a different kind of think tank dedicated to helping clients think outside the box. Well, Jim, a pleasure having you on. And really, at this particular time in our history, there couldn't be anything more important than thinking outside the box, because uh, we certainly need that in this day and age. And in the preface of the book, you speak about how we are living in perplexing times. And in the middle of this tam uh, pandemic, probably not much more so challenging. And we no longer have the luxury of time to prepare before the next things fired upon us. And I would say 
you know, I've been on the planet a long time like you. It certainly seems like the older we get and the stuff that's coming at us seems to be faster and faster. You also state that we need to embrace every moment, but that this process can be difficult. What advice would you give our listeners to help reduce the anxiety that they really could be facing right now about our current perplexing times? Well, Greg, first of all, thank you very much. You, uh, you mentioned uh, in the introduction that I, I wrote the book uh, before the pandemic, and it's true. I had no idea what form it would take, but I was reasonably clear and have been for a while that uh, that we are in the middle of some kind of uh, major reconfiguration of our notions of reality. We could call it a, a paradigm change or a shift in our worldview but uh, lots of stuff is going on, and, it's, and as you just said, it's happening faster and faster. Um, when I talked about the perplexing times, I, I guess what I'm saying is that I think most of our uh, assumptions about almost everything are being challenged and in many cases, uh, frankly, just totally overturned. Uh, the things that we took for granted before, uh, things that we even have thought of as common sense are no longer necessarily serving us. And uh, as a consequence, we're having to rethink how we think. Uh, For example, I I usually begin uh, some of my workshops by saying, uh, what would you be committed to if you weren't limited by what you think limits you? And I think that statement pretty well captures the essence of what I mean by perplexing times. Uh, you know, do do we really have a choice about the future? Uh, do we do we really uh, do we know how to learn about learning? Uh, you know, is knowledge is knowledge really what we thought it was for most of the last uh, few centuries? Uh, because all of this uh, uh, insight into ourselves and into our relationship with life and the world is now sort of emerging and being. Uh, uh, explored as we as we speak. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, as you watch, just whatever media you watch, I don't care which one. I'm not trying to be a political here. Or you see what's going in times. We're hearing a lot of conflicting reports, not only about the virus but our economy, uh, where it's going. Steve Mnuchin coming on almost every morning on a program and speaking about it. And it, it, it gives us um, good leaders really need to have not only this level of certainty within themselves as they speak, but to do it with honesty and integrity. And I think that's really important. And you mentioned that at a deeper level, we have some profound blind spots and touch questions that, we need to contemplate. What are those questions you believe we should be trying to answer at this particular time, whatever they might be? Because there's a lot of deep questions we can ponder about life, death, um, our existence on this planet. Um, What are a few of them that you're thinking about right now as a thought leader? Well, you know, it, it's interesting, uh, uh, Greg. Sometimes people think that uh, I'm a bit too philosophical. On the other hand, I'm a fan of the of the notion that uh, that we live our philosophy, whether we think philosophically or not. That our philosophies of life and our philosophies are 
pretty much a product of questions that human beings have been asking maybe since the beginning. Uh, there are variations of who are we, uh, uh, what's happening in the world, uh, what's possible, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and I think these questions are, the, the answers to these questions are a lot, <clears throat> a lot less important, I think, than the questions themselves. Because the questions tend to pull us out of our ego. They tend to pull us out of our historical way of thinking. And they open up new horizons and new new relationships with life in the world. Uh, so when I ask the question, for example, uh, you know, what would you be committed to if you weren't limited by what you think limits you? Uh, most people don't walk around thinking about their limitations. Uh, their limitations pretty much define what they think. Uh, and as a consequence, by just asking that question, people say, "Aha! Uh -huh. you know, my assumption is, is that I can't do something. Where did that assumption mm -hmm. come from? And is it possible? Right. Is, is it possible? Now, one of the things that I talk about in the book, and I also use in, in my own work, is the, is the insight <clears throat> that possibilities do not exist in reality. By definition, a possibility is not real. If, it, if you could prove a possibility, mm -hmm. you, it would be an example. So consequently, I'm generally helping people rethink how they think so that they have more possibilities in their world. And if they have more possibilities, then they have more choices. So, so my, my general uh, orientation, both in the book and in my work is really to, to ask people to consider and take a, take a point of view, not whether it's true or false, but is there more possibility looking at the world one way than looking at the world another way? which is really mm -hmm. the essence of the book. Wouldn't you say that uh, I know in the book Sapiens, which I'm pretty certain you've probably read. Um, Absolutely. He, refer he refers to it as our shared imagination. It's our collective mm -hmm. shared imagination. Um, and the world really is. I mean, you think about our economy, the stock market, the whatever. What makes a price of one share of stock go up and another go down. Uh, and again, it's the whole concept of this being made up. I'm sure it's pretty hard for people to get their hands around. Um, is there some way you could put this in context, this whole shared imagination thing? Because if that's the case, then anything that we can imagine we can create and you see it happening. I mean, we're coming into the air with Uber is, uh, testing flying cars, right? We're, there's all kinds of examples, the robots, everything that we've oh, got sure. going on these days uh, in the way of innovation and technology, the speed at which computers are moving these days, the tracking That's that right. Google and Apple is going to be doing with everybody, right? We're going to see that on our cell phone. What would you ask? What would you tell people who are kind of out there, they're maybe a little bit lost right now, and they're saying, wow, if this is a shared imagination, I have a hard time getting my head around that. Well, I think, uh, I mean, first of all, I have an enormous amount of compassion and appreciation for how difficult uh, living can be sometimes these days. Uh, even when I look at my own children and I think, you know, do they have the same opportunities and possibilities in their lives that I had when I came out of school? And uh, I think the answer is generally uh, somewhere between no and I don't know. Uh, but I do, I do believe that 
from a philosophical point of view, and it's even logical if you really look at it, uh, life happens moment to moment to moment. Uh, the only thing that's really present ever is now. And uh, the history is always a story. And uh, tomorrow is always a possibility. Now, the, the, the larger worldview that most of us have lived in for quite a long time uh, is a world in which the reality is considered to be objective fact. And that uh, science and rational thinking and uh, learning and knowledge is all predicated on the notion that reality is a certain way. And if we want to succeed in life, we just have to understand and have the right model of reality, and then we'll be able to do whatever we need to do and want to do. Uh, my work is founded in the philosophical view that reality is always, always, always just an interpretation, uh, that we literally live in different worlds. Uh, the world in the Middle East is, is a different reality than my world. Uh, there's not a common reality that we have a different point of view about. It's a different reality. And as a consequence, the question, one way of looking at, at what you ask is that history could be considered to be a big narrative, that what what uh, Havarti calls a collective imagination could be, be also considered to be sort of our common story, our common story right. about the past and our common story about the future. Now, mm -hmm. now that now we could call that history, but the point is we make decisions and we make choices and we navigate in our lives based upon what we've learned or thought we've learned, mostly based on history. Now, my my view is is that if you look a little deeper, you could also see that what's actually going on moment to moment to moment, what Tolley calls the power of now, is human beings are having conversations. They're, they're having conversations about what's happening. They're having conversations about what did happen. And they're having conversations about what could happen. And then based uh -huh. on those conversations, they're making commitments, they're coordinating action, and they're bringing forth or creating whatever reality is. So from my view, we all will have a common future, whether we like it or not. And secondly... And I think, our, I think they're doing a really good job, Jim, of doing a better job of probably putting the dots together because you know you you look at um our critical thinking skills i think you mentioned that someplace in your book um mm -hmm. you know you kind of wonder what happened but i am beginning to see now more than ever that the critical thinking skills um that we seem to have abandoned are are seem to be coming back people are giving a lot more thought because the disruption has been so great. Exactly. I, and you know, I use the word, I use the word rigor a lot in my work uh, and rigorous, uh -huh. rigorous, rigorous thinking like critical thinking in, in rigorous thinking is a way of examining the assumptions behind your point of view. Uh -huh. uh, I don't, I don't think there's such a thing as the truth, like the right, true interpretation of life. But I think we have different views of life. And in the mm -hmm. past, what we've been doing is trying to get everybody to agree what is the right point of view. And what right. I'm suggesting there is isn't one. there isn't one. And consequently, we <laughs> need right. to learn. We need to learn 
how do we coordinate our differences in the interest of a common future rather than right. try to resolve our differences in order to force feed some kind of homogeneous you know interpretation so when we see the kind of ideological warfare that's going on in the world uh, it's mostly a, a lot of people trying to defend their points of view and as a consequence uh -huh. we end up with the kind of polarization we're experiencing in the United States and many other countries and that polarization in turn tends to stop progress it, it regardless of which side wins it it becomes a it right. becomes a kind of it becomes a kind of in, institutionalized conflict where even well, the it's conflict versus conflict versus cooperation i think the reality that, is, yeah. is that you say we're living in a real time world what is the reality and I and I always wonder maybe what Socrates would say about this at this point, but the the reality is your reality can be different from mine, but that doesn't mean they need to clash to come to some kind of conclusion. That's right. right. Or, or even is. if or even if they clash, if we recognize that neither one is the truth, then we right. can we can say our choice is we we are going to create a future in which we are permanently, you know, polarized, or we're going to create a mm -hmm. future that's the, where we have a, a different set of moves and choices available to us. Uh, again, I think the idea here is that most people, because of this historical objectification of reality, don't see that they actually have a choice about what they're doing. They always justify right. their choices. Right. Well, they... Go ahead. No, no. The, well, religion people, has done. A, I, I say religion has done a great job of uh, bifurcating people for some time, right? So you know, it's about our beliefs. You know, you're going to go down a belief, and this is mine, and I have it, and it's you know, it doesn't matter if it's Christians or it's Jews or it's or it's uh, Hindu or it doesn't matter. We've seen more fighting over that than anything because it's a very s strong belief that people have close to them. But, you know, you state in the book that this accelerating rate of change means that the gap between our past and our future is becoming smaller and smaller. And I agree with that, that the yeah, well, consequences I, when, of this gap disappearing yeah. is that we no longer have the time to deal with the problems like we used to. What choices do you believe we need to make or alter the course of our future of the earth? As we know it, you outlined seven of them in the book that I remember, and it might be a great place to kind of comment on those, Jim, because people would want to know. Well, thanks. Uh, you know, I, I think I think that the, uh, the the idea I have of a real time world, Greg, is uh, it's accelerating change, which I think most people recognize, uh, but it also has three other at least three other characteristics one is unpredictability i don't know mm -hmm. very many of my clients who are mostly executives who who expect or trust their predictions beyond a very short short time frame um, so unpredictability accelerating change and then you add to that uh, the, the overwhelming complexity that uh, you know you start pulling on almost any string these days you're going to end up with a a very large ball of yarn. Uh, the other thing is that that we don't really have much, if any, control over what's happening. 
And I think this is the source of a lot of the anxiety that you mentioned earlier. Now, the, uh, the point here is the world will be what it is. You know, I don't know whether it's, it's going to be utopian or whether it's going to be dystopian or somewhere in between. Uh, I'm pretty committed to the idea that none of us, zero, none of us have the vaguest idea what the world is going to look like in the not too distant future, say 10, 15 years. I, I mean, anybody mm-hmm. can speculate, but I don't think anybody has the vaguest idea what it's going to look like any more than anybody could have predicted what the world would look like in April of 2020 uh, uh, in late 2019. You know, I published this book in November and uh, I had no idea about the pandemic coming. But this is the reality we're in now, this day, is the unimagined future from a couple of months ago. So, so this is what an unimaginable future looks like. Who could have imagined that the entire world economy would basically halt? That you know, two thirds of the airlines would be on the ground. Uh, that you know, millions and millions and millions of people would be unemployed. Uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think this is just the first of a series of disruptions. So if you if you if you're in that space, the the first thing to do is to stop and and reflect that that if you accept the premise that we are now living in a different world than we were living in a year ago or 10 years ago, it is not the same. Then we need to then say we need to begin to question a lot of things that we typically took for granted. For example, you know, is it possible is it possible to have a breakthrough here? You know, could could we benefit from this in in powerful ways? Could we uh, perhaps in many cases restart our lives over again? Uh, you know, or do we really? In fact, all of my questions really come down to: Do we really have a choice about how our life goes? Uh, I use the metaphor, uh, Greg, the Star Trek Enterprise to kind of capture this idea of a real-time world. I suggest that, as the slogan goes, we're we're going where no one has ever gone before, and we don't have maps <laughs> to guide us. Uh, yeah. In the past. Yeah, yeah, it's uncharted the, territory. Yeah, in the in the in the, yeah. in the in the in the in a period of slow change, where where change takes decades, uh, then you can rely on the past to tell you what to do in the future. You can learn from your parents. Mm-hmm. You can learn from recipes. You can you can you have the leisure to have debates and think about it and reflect on it and so forth. But if life is coming at us, uh, what they would take it a guess it called point blank. If life is fired at us point blank, day to day, minute to minute, uh, then we don't have that luxury, as you mentioned earlier, to to ponder <laughs> to ponder our thinking. We have to be in action all of the time, just like on the Star Trek right. Enterprise. And uh, as a consequence, we need to develop relationships that we can count on to help navigate. Basically, the navigation uh in the future is going to be, and it's always been this way to some degree, a function of what are we committed to. Uh, not that that if you start with what you said earlier about anything is possible, or most anything is possible, <clears throat> then the question is, what future are you committed to in your personal life, in your community, in your country, in your nation, and in the world? 
And are your actions today Mm -hmm. consistent with that commitment, that vision? I I have the the notion, Greg, that but it but it like you said, Jim, it seems to be shaking out in real time, and I want to go back to that because you can have this vision. You just said, like Star Trek, we're going to dimensions we've never been before, and we are. And the question that the listeners might be asking is, well, I they've always want to know how. I don't know if knowing how right now is as important as being in the present and making observations is about what's going on and being able to be um, very flexible, very resilient, very open to change, where most people are probably very resistant to this. You need to embrace what's going on, and I think you've got to embrace it with your whole heart every day, every minute. Um, that's exactly, you know, and, exactly. and you talk about this distinction between clarity and certainty in the book. And I think it was really a good point. I want to make sure we cover this. Can you relate to the listeners, this difference between the two clarity and uh, certainty? Because that's yes, one yes. of the big hangups. No, absolutely. And I, and I, I'll answer that. And then I want to go back to the, to the earlier conversation for just a second, but the, the primary thing is that most people are looking for certainty. They're looking for what's going to happen. They want to know what the where is the conversation going? Uh, what's the future going to be? It's, it's a variation of trying to get certainty about the future so that we can be, think at least maintain the belief that we have some control over what's happening and what we're doing. Uh, certainty, though, is a, is a function of assessments about the world, about the uh, the environment, about the circumstances. You're looking for something outside yourself, information, knowledge, uh, commitment of a leader, uh, but you're looking for something outside yourself to give you a, a sense of certainty. As most people can tell from their own experience, when you're looking for certainty, you can never get enough. There's always another, there's always another, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. Uh, so getting, wanting certainty is universal. Uh, getting it is very elusive, if ever. There are no guarantees in life. Now, clarity, on the other hand, is, a, is something that you generate from within. Uh, what do you need to be clear about something? What do you need to be clear about the way it is or the way I say it or what I'm asking? And when you're committed to clarity, if something isn't clear, then you clear it up by asking questions or or rethinking or, or doing whatever needs to be done. So when you're committed to clarity, it's always either clear or you clear it up. When you're looking for certainty, you're waiting for information or something outside yourself to make you feel, quote, certain. So that's the difference. That's a that is a great place because it gives the listeners this opportunity to understand. And I think that uncertainty right now is really the bigger question. And Jim, if you would speak to our listeners about what you refer to as real time as oh, let me reframe this question again. Uh, Jim, if you would speak with our listeners about what you refer to as the real time world. You state that in a real-time world, who we are is not permanent or fixed, 
but constantly evolving narrative. What do you believe that we should evolve into as human beings in the real-time world? And you speak here about the six capabilities. This is a real important point of the book, so I want to make sure that our listeners get this. Well, first of all, I, I came upon the term real-time world because I started my career uh, back when computers were uh, pure information machines uh, in the 60s. Uh, and, and, and that's all they did. They were just information sorting machines. Uh, at some point, the, the gap between the inputs and the outputs got smaller and smaller. And, and when, the, when that gap, for all practical purposes, disappeared, uh, that's when the term real-time computing came into vogue. Uh, in other words, the, there was no discernible difference between what the computer was doing in, the, in, in terms of inputs and outputs. That, that gap had disappeared. Now, in that moment, the computer as a tool transformed from an informing machine to a performing machine. Now, what I'm suggesting is that we're in that kind of a transformational moment in history. Okay, where the world is changing faster than we can comprehend it. And more importantly, where we can't rely on our history to tell us what will happen or tell us what to do. And as a consequence, we have to more or less be in action and, and uh, present uh, in, a, in profound ways like never before. Uh, sometimes I also use the metaphor of being a, a, a sea captain or being in a sailboat in the ocean. Uh, you don't have control over the weather or the weather or the waves, uh, and you still want to get from point A to point B. Or if you go in history, if you're an explorer, you're crossing the ocean and you're not sure what's going to get there. But you have to deal every minute of every day with the weather, with the waves, in order to navigate and make the various choices that you need to make. Now, my claim in the book is the following. One is that human beings, all of us, have an, an enormous reservoir of innate capability that many of us have not developed. Some of us don't even know we have. Uh, I often use the notion of the ability to read. The ability to read is a capability that's in, implicit and innate in every single human being, uh, short of brain damage, I suppose. But in, the point is every human being has an ability to read, but not everyone is literate. So whether you can only sign your name with an X or whether you can read the Cyclopedia Britannica, the, the, the amount of literacy is a function of cultivating a capability that's already there. Now, in the book, when we talk about six capabilities, there may be many more. I'm sure there are. But I've identified the six capabilities that I think are most essential for us to be prepared for what's beyond our thinking. So just as the pandemic was beyond our thinking six months ago, uh, are we prepared for what might show up in 2021 that we're not even able to imagine at this moment? And the capabilities that I speak about, there are six of them. Uh, the first one is a capability of acceptance, the capability of uh, allowing life and the world and your environment to be the way it is, to not have to understand it, not have to control it, not have to... Uh, uh, do anything with the experience of life that you have, but simply allow life to happen on life's term. I call this sometimes the uh, art of surrender. 
where we're simply no longer uh, trying to make life happen, but allowing life to be what it is. Now, uh, I also make it very clear, surrendering is an action and a choice that's different than succumbing and being beaten down and oppressed and, and defeated by life. That when you're playing a game and you realize that uh, you're, there's no possibility of winning, then the, th- the appropriate move is to surrender. Uh, because you can't start a new game until you stop playing the game you're playing. Now, I want that for your listeners is really the point. If you're going to accept the premise that you can't predict or control the future, then the question is, what future are you committed to creating? And in order to do that, you need to accept that whatever you've been doing isn't producing what you want. Now, that's one of the capabilities. I have another capability that has to do with appreciating that our way of being in the world is a choice, that it's no, it's not some kind of a uh, abstraction or some kind of a uh, uh, theoretical idea, that every human being lives in some context or another, and the name we typically use for that context is being, our ground of being, uh, where we're coming from, uh, you could psychologically call it perhaps your, your deep attitude. But, but the point here is there's always a background, uh, uh, that's organizing and informing whatever we're doing day to day. I have another, another capability which has to do with learning and appreciating that there is so much complexity and so much to learn in the world that almost anything that you want to know is going to either require a huge amount of effort and time or uh, and it may very well be obsolete by the time that you learn it. So we need to develop a kind of what I call situational learning, where we can we can work as teams, for example, to appropriate knowledge, information, background, history about any subject that we particularly want, uh, but not necessarily have to digest it and have every individual. Uh, acquire a deep understanding of it, that our capacity for collective learning is now emerging as a skill set in its own right, and yet that's also something that's innate in every one of us. Uh, Everyone, I think, would agree that communication and relationship are absolutely fundamental in life, and yet I think many people don't, don't appreciate that relationship is a competency. Uh, I also think that many people don't make a distinction between communicating uh, in terms of coordinating our commitments and just exchanging information back and forth. So I open up that in the book as well. And then finally, the the uh, the uh, probably my favorite chapter is to appreciate that in, throughout history, uh, there's always been a sort of central organizing idea that the civilization or the society is organized around. So for example, in the Middle Ages, it was personal salvation. And in the Renaissance, it was something to do with beauty and art. And in the industrial era, it's been about production and control. But I think that the new idea that's emerging as the primary organizing principle for living is something like care or caring. It's about really appreciating that in the world, in a real-time world, in a world where there's so much at stake and there's so much uh, complexity, it's it's critically important that whatever we're doing and with whomever we're doing it with, that we're doing it in a, with a sense of care, care for each other, care for ourselves, 
care for our environment. And it's, and it's in that taking care. I'm not talking about emotion here. I'm talking about the kind of care that an artist takes with a stroke of a brush on a, on a canvas or a machinist takes with the refinement of, of, of some uh, tool that he or she may be building. And it's that taking care of with the kind of human attention to detail and the sensitivity and sensibilities for one's uh, medium in which they're living that really begins to, I think, unite us and perhaps has always united us. That that the kind of solidarity of humanity, the, the kind of uh, resolving the paradox between the freedom of the individual and the interest of the whole is now starting to, I think, uh, come together in a context of care. Well, I think that uh, compassion and care are where the world is coming together and uniting. I'm seeing more love, and I think that's important. And I think love and business, um, employers trying to do the best that they can for their employees during these tough times, looking at all the people that are furloughed. And that brings me to this section in the book about entrepreneurial self. You speak about the future of work, and obviously most people people's work has shifted due to COVID-19 pandemic in some way. We're working from home now. We're not going to the office as much uh, at, or at all, I should say. What advice would you give our listeners about what you refer to as this future of work? Because you talk about going to unknown places. I think we're, we're starting to see this new shift in the way in which we'll work. Well, if, if you, with the caveat that I said earlier, I don't think anybody has any idea what the future is going to look like, myself included. So uh, I, I don't really know what to say about the future of work. Now, having having that caveat, I do believe that the the earlier insight, which is that we're always creating reality minute to minute anyway, that entrepreneurs are pretty clear about that that they're that entrepreneurial way of relating to life. Is a is a way of life where you're 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 basically making it up and creating it every day, uh, and that way of being in the world. And again, I'm saying that's that's a way of being, regardless of whether you're doing an enterprise or a company, uh, or or trying to start a business. Uh, that that idea that every day is a creation, that every day, every conversation I'm in is producing something. Uh, that that way of being suggests that the future of, of work as a as a means of, of livelihood and living uh, is going to take a kind of paradoxical turn. It's going to take, one, more and more empowerment of the individual. We're seeing a lot of this now today with the, quote, gig economy. Uh, and I think you're going to see much more personal ownership and responsibility emerging uh, from people who are making a living. I think the idea that a company has a job that I'm going to fill is beginning to break down. I think the context, the concept of a job where the, the, the corporate entity is the owner of the work and that you are being paid to do their work uh, is also dissolving. So I think it's becoming much more about the personal individual uh in life and what do you have to offer? So the question everybody should be asking is what is my offer in the world? Not what kind of jobs are there for me to fill. If I'm clear what my offer is, 
then the next question I would be looking for is who to whom am I making this offer? Who needs who needs what I have to offer? And so I think you're going to see a lot more of that kind of uh, individually motivated and driven kind of, of thinking, even when we're doing it within a corporate context. So I think, for example, recruiting is going to be totally different in the future because right now recruiting is based on trying to make judgments of whether you fit a particular hole or job slot or predefined piece of work that's that that I'm hiring someone to do. In the future, I think recruiting is going to be much more of a dialogue between people who are trying to get something done and people who have something to offer to help that happen. So rather than I have a job as a salesman, would you fill that job or not? And do I think you have the background to do it? It'll turn much more in terms of, okay, I want three new customers. Uh, what do you got to say? And if you have an offer that'll help me get three more customers, then you're creating your own job and you're coming into work owning the job. You're not trying to fill a, a fulfill a procedure that was already predefined by some, some expert. Mm -hmm. so that's the kind of thing that I think is emerging. Oh, it certainly is. And I think that that is a huge paradigm shift for people to get their head around. Um, it doesn't matter what occupation you had or where you are. You're going to have to step up to the plate more now than ever and give more of your initiative to it, just like you said. And you mentioned that as we communicate in conversation, we're creating or recreating our relationship with the world. And in the book, Real-Time World, authority has less and less power. We just were talking about that. There is little mm -hmm. or no time for order giving and taking. We have to trust each other implicitly, you said. How do you envision our world and how do we need to change the way we communicate with one another to be more inclusive and understanding of one another so that we can make this uh trajectory into the future or into places unknown easier for us to comprehend? Wow. Uh, that's a pretty huge question. Um, I, I think, I think a, a, a short way of orienting ourselves to that is that if you accept the premise that every conversation you have is going to produce some result at work, at home, that there are no there are no neutral conversations. Even if a conversation is caca and doesn't produce anything except maintain the status quo, that itself is a result. One of my bigger concerns is that there's too many people that are now talking about reality, having conversations about what's happening that isn't having any impact on what's happening. It's the difference between having a conversation about productivity and having a conversation that produces something. Now, what, what, I, what I suggest is that the, the if, 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 well, let me just give you an example. If every single conversation you were in for the next week made a little bit of difference, made a little bit of contribution, added a little bit of value, and if and if you think about how many conversations you have a day, so let's say you have 20 conversations a day, you know that's 100 a week. And if you have 100 or 140 a week, and if and if you if every one of those conversations move the needle just a little bit in the positive direction, and if the people you talk to, each of the conversations they had, 
moved the needle a little bit. It doesn't take you very long to see the kind of exponential change that you could have, and it's that kind of change that could change the world. Uh, Helen, uh, uh, Margaret Mead once said, never underestimate the power of an individual uh, to change the world. In fact, that's the only way it ever happens. Uh, so I'm, I'm suggesting that the medium by which this new reality unfolds or the the, the possibility of, of large-scale global transformation is very real for me, and that's really what I'm trying to inspire in the book, uh, not giving people answers about the way it could be or should be, but to give people clarity that they actually have access to the actions that could make a difference. Oh, so important, too, because you're actually asking them to ask questions. And I think as a podcast interviewer, one of the most important things I can do is ask profound questions of my authors and their work. And um, I think every day I get on and do a podcast, I learn more and more. And I think importantly, like you said, don't rush to what reality is. I think you have to take the facts in. You have to process them in whatever way you can. And then make those decisions knowing those decisions are right. You know, that goes back to those critical thinking skills, because more than ever right now, I think people need to use those skills. And so how would you, know, you like the, to wrap this interview up? Go ahead. Go ahead. Just, just, just a quick thought. One of the, the big insights that the, built is, the book is built on is the idea that the individual is only able to make a commitment. Uh, commitments are only made mm-hmm. by individuals. The idea we commit's not possible. You commit, I commit, and we can align our commitments. And that's the way the realities are created by making commitments. By the same token, none of us can fulfill our commitments by ourselves. We always need other human beings to fulfill our commitments. So consequently, that's the resolution between I, the individual, and I, the community, or the relationship. And it's in that foundation that we're able to create this future together. Uh, and if I were going to end the interview, uh, Greg, I, I guess I would leave everybody with one of my favorite quotes by Helen Keller, which is that life is a great adventure or it's nothing. And that just as the Star Trek Enterprise is a great adventure or our forefathers that explored the new world uh, were on a great adventure, uh, there was anxiety and risk and danger, but there was also an enormous sense of enthusiasm and possibility, which is really what has brought us into life today. Well, you certainly give people an opportunity to embrace uncertainty with this, but you also give them, I want to call in, in some sense, uh, a format, a context in which to do it in. So living in a real time world, um, we've been on with Jim Selman. He's the author of the book, six capabilities to prepare us for an unimaginable future. And I think the book, more than anything, during these times, to all those listeners that are listening, um, is an opportunity for you to read, reflect, uh, rejigger your thoughts, all your own thoughts and where you're going, and continue those conversations, those deep conversations about reality. Um, what is it really? As we said before, we talked about uh, uh, the book Sapiens and the fact that it's our, our collective imagination. And I think, what is the collective imagination and where are we going? And Jim, it's been a pleasure 
having you on the show, giving our listeners a little bit more thought-provoking questions about reality and about where this real-time world is going. And I appreciate you doing that. Thanks for being on. Well, it's certainly been my pleasure, Greg. Thank you so much.